Good morning and welcome to the uh, Rethink Energy podcast. Um, we're all here, the usual suspects, Harry Morgan, say hello. Hello. <laughs> um, Andrew Swantanar. Hello. hello. Yeah, and Simon <laughs> Thompson. And hello. Peter White. Okay, and um, we're talking about the issue on the 12th of August no. 2021. The first item we wanted to look at was um, uh, about what the American president is doing uh, to help the EV industry. We entitled it Sleepy US Tortoise Tries to Catch Chinese Hair in EVs. And you think that during the Trump administration, the US was asleep, was 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 the tortoise? Yeah, a bit like um, uh, Tesla um, drivers uh, asleep at the wheel. <laughs> right. OK. Um, but unfortunately, unlike Tesla drivers, uh, there was no there were no guardrails for Mr. Trump. And he spent five years trying to go swim against the tide of uh, history and uh, uh, wanted to remove all the emission standards for American internal combustion engine cars and make it as hard as possible for any of them to get into the uh, EV revolution. The moment that he was no longer in charge uh, of the American economy, the uh, chairman and CEO of uh, General Motors changed direction within a heartbeat and said, yes, we're going to be all EVs by 2035. And the rest is history that you can read in the issues of uh, Rethink Energy. This has all happened with less than 12 months. I think it was just before Christmas when, when I read about that. The, the, the beautiful thing about this is, I mean, you, you know, nobody can lose five years. You can't lose five years going in the wrong direction uh, and still expect to catch up. We we always think of Detroit as the home of cars, as where um, all the car companies herald from in the States. And we all think of the uh, the classic name. I mean, the Ford, of course, is the most classic car name of all times, dating all the way back to the original Ford and the Model T, uh, which was the first uh, automation uh, line that was ever created for making cars. And, and America thinks seems to think collectively that it's, it's, it's in its... It's it's right to own the global um, automobile industry. But of course, it doesn't really dominate trucks outside of America. It, it, Toyota is the largest car company in the world. And even Toyota has been playing the ostrich in the last five years and burying its head in the sand. And all of this plays to a fairly tame China that was just starting to make average cars and starting to make some sales in its own market. And if anyone thought that China was asleep and wasn't going to be accelerating into EVs, uh, numbers out this week should dissuade them from that. Uh, Sales in China, we've got this in our worth noting section, but sales in China of uh, EVs are a record jumping up to, let me see, I think it was 10% of all new car sales. And that's bang on the forecast that we gave. It's not quite bang on. We've said 11% of all Chinese cars will be EVs in 2021, but 10% for the month of July. So we're heading above that 10% uh, number as we go into um, uh, to, to the rest of the year. And it's just so clear that China is going to own the car, global car industry. 
And the US figure is that much closer to sort of three, three. I think it's three to four percent at the moment of sales of electric vehicles at the moment. So it's just, also, it's, I looked up said two percent still. I mean, uh, you, you, you are right. It was it was it was mostly two percent last year, but um, yeah, rising to maybe three and a half now. But we've forecast all these announcements. We knew that GM would happen. We knew that Ford would happen. We knew that what would happen is as Europe takes the lead and says we're banning ICE cars. The car companies that want to sell in Europe, both the Americans and the Japanese, will have to accelerate their EV program. They did. We knew that as soon as they took that decision, it would make no sense to not accelerate it globally. And they did. No one else in the forecasting business understands change the way we do. And when you are in a competitive market, you're forced to change, no matter what your CEO is saying back in the home territory. And we we saw all that was going to happen. And as a result, we forecast that 26% of all cars by 2030 would be EVs in America. No one was forecasting that kind of number. 10 or 11% was what the other forecasters were saying. And Biden is saying, no, no, we 26% is not enough. We're going to accelerate this to 50. Now, he's got a lot of tools at his disposal, both carrot and stick. And um, if he gets his way in the shape of um, the, you know, he's already got some money to play with in the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that has passed. Um, 7.5 billion of that is for EV recharge units, less than he wanted. But then he's got another go at this as he um, as he brings another framework agreement into you know, the the, the, the um, new Green Deal um, funding that he hopes to get 3.5 trillion. And and an outline agreement has already been passed. It seems possible that he could he could get his way, uh, and that that they could accelerate to 50 percent. By 2030, 50% of all new cars by 2030. That would be a colossal change of direction. And even now, with McKenzie, Bloomberg, S&P Global and others are not saying that anything like that number is going to happen. I predict they'll all have revised forecasts. They might as well come to our website and just copy out. And then we come on to your um, next article, actually, or one of the articles that you produced. Actually, we 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 weren't uh, going to talk about this today, but you, you're you know, you're talking about OPEC. You're talking about um, the um, the various machinations of ExxonMobil, and uh, if you look at the share price of the American oil companies, and and as they become irrelevant because nobody wants to. Every investor has pulled out of them. And as those companies start merging to survive, you're going to see less and less interest in a, in a sinking ship. We've said that although we believe that, that peak oil has passed, it's going to stay at roughly the same level for another eight or nine years. So around 2009, if they have even 10% of their current market cap, I'd be shocked. And, and those companies that have not invested in renewables just fall away. And America can come last to every one of these parties. That's why I invoke the idea of the tortoise and the hare, because, you know, the, the Biden's painting this picture of uh, uh, America catching up and or maybe overtaking China. Well, I don't see the battery incentives. I don't see the car incentives yet in place that China's had for years. And China's only just started taking off now. Yeah, I think, yeah, and, and you, you point to Action Mobile there, and I think that's a really good example um, of a company now that is almost 
too late in the sense of 90% of ExxonMobil's climate conscious investors, which probably accounted for the majority of the investors and have now jumped ship and won't be buying ExxonMobil stock again. And the only way that they're going to be able to keep their existing investors on board um, is by raising, by shelling out massive, massive dividends and, and actually sort of wasting their money on keeping shareholders on board. So ExxonMobil now is becoming more of a financial instrument than it is actually a, an energy company. Until it can't uh, borrow money anymore as well. And it's, yeah, it's yeah, going to have yeah. to pay off debt by selling assets. Those assets increasingly will go to companies that are not in the American stock market, but that are traded in places you know, like Brazil or, or in, the, in the Far East. That, those companies will see a, a quick killing by getting hold of some prime assets from ExxonMobil for a couple of billion dollars, and they'll just work them to death. Um, but ExxonMobil will just shrink and shrink and shrink. If it, while it continues to give money back to shareholders to um, buy its own stock and not invest in renewables, it has got nowhere to go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's almost like a football club going into administration. It, it's not going to be able to sell all of its players at a decent price because people are going to be, going to be trying to offload stuff. I um, mean, they're not going to be able to sell any asset. They're going to be trying to divest assets if they're going to try and fund any sort of transition strategy. But any companies that's looking to buy assets, Devon Energy, for example, they're going to know that this is the case. So they're not going to be offering top dollar for these these oil assets. They're going to be playing bottom dollar and ExxonMobil just aren't going to be making the revenue that they expect to make. They'll be writing down more off their assets. And every finance analyst in the world is going to then look at what they're selling assets for, apply that to Chevron and, and Total and the others and bring down their market cap, eventually you'll measure BP or Shell's market cap based on future revenues from their renewable um, investments. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that and it, it does bring us on quite uh, quite nicely to Andrew's IPCC report, because that's yeah. something that we're, we've seen this week and within the oil market as well, is that the way of, sort of climate pressure is really trying to bring that peak oil down. Um, and even, even if it has already passed, they want it to sort of really decelerate. So... I think it's the pressure, it's just a relentless pressure now for people to not be increasing their production. And I think that's something we've seen. We've seen the US asking OPEC to actually increase their production this week to try and suppress the oil prices within the US. And I mean, OPEC just simply aren't going to do that. Um, they'll compete with, they're going to want to keep the prices fairly stable and show that they have got some control over prices. So it's it's desperate times if you're in the oil market and it's desperate times if you're anyone who's um, having a ne- negative impact on the planet. Andrew, talk us through the main conclusions of the report. I think everybody else has, has read many headlines about it. So let's keep uh, let's keep to the guts of uh, what is code red for humanity. The the report itself, I I didn't I probably didn't get the most in depth take on. It was quite interesting actually to look through their their maps that they put out and see. Oh, you've got all this nice um extra precipitation in in deserts, isn't that isn't that nice? And then you notice, oh, that's in the worst case scenario where it's also six degrees hotter and, and that that probably brings places like the empty quarter in Saudi Arabia up to 50 degrees quite often so really uninhabitable. So um, I, I've been buying a house in Sicily uh, and just up the road in Syracuse um, they had 48.8 degrees. It in, broke a record. It broke, it's, broke a European record for high temperature wow. that was this week this a few days ago. There's also there's a few places that will have reduced precipitation and they're pretty so, uh, important places the amazon uh, australia's farmland which is quite marginal and relies on irrigation already you've got um uh, and, and southern europe actually well so sicily is one of one of those places and, and north africa 
quite serious uh, places to have issues. At least Tibet will have some lots of large lakes, so the Tibetans will be happy. Yeah, but you know, remember they were already had several mountains full of snow melting to create some of the largest rivers in the world. So uh, adding water where there's already a different type of water mm. isn't isn't all that helpful. I mean, the big problem is you, you spend 20 or 30 years building dams in a country like China and mm. then there is no water. You know, as we've seen in Latin America, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, they were building dams. Argentina, Brazil, and of course, they're all in drought. You not only is, are you having trouble with your farmland, you're having trouble with your electricity supply, um, which is why they turn to fossil fuels. Yeah, and a country like Venezuela that we covered recently is uh, totally dependent on one hydro, hydropower plant. Uh, probably Peru is a lot as well. Certainly Brazil is very dependent, or, or at least... 40% dependent, or was it 70% on hydroelectric? It's, it's about, yeah, it's over 60%. And it also has this concept of um, an accelerated water cycle. So it's predicting more floods and more droughts for the same regions. I mean, that's um, that's an example I always give, you know, back to your Tibet thing. If hmm. the snow falls as rain, it only takes a couple of days to flow through the rivers, uh, drown a few people and get back to the sea. And, and there's none there to melt come the summer. And just take just changing your temperature five or six degrees when it rains is enough to create that kind of habit. Once you start thinking about that's why we don't talk about climate change on uh, rethink energy. We talk about the business opportunities for renewable energy. And when you look at that, you you just see um, you have this picture that there will be large tracts of land in in uh, in and around the equator which are uninhabitable, great line going around the planet, Can't it's not enough water, too hot. And what will we put there? It'd just it'd be like a circle of, um, a global circle of solar, um, very, very cheap electricity. That, that's what everyone has to build. It's amazing how long it's taken for governments. <laughs> you see the reaction to the IPC, report from Australia uh, uh, they're still in denial about the whole thing. I watched the video of Scott Morrison's dedicated press conference to the report and he said it reaffirms a serious challenge for all nations in the world and we must take action but then about 10 seconds later he said well two-thirds of emissions come from the developing world actually and China's emissions outweigh the OECD so he's already so the the, the political line he's going for is this tangled, contradictory mess where he has to, rhetorically speaking, he has to buy into the opposition's frame, basically, and then uh, sort of try and worm his way out of it with a bunch of excuses and, and blame shifting, all the, re all the rest of it. And, oh, but this is the proper way to do that's it. That's why we have to invest in gas. So it, it clearly shows it's, it's not exactly convenient for him to have to do that. I think the timing of it as well, I think the timing of the um, report ahead of COP26, I think, makes it sort of inexcusable for many politicians to not be rethinking their climate strategies i think what the one thing that i hope we don't see and I, we inevitably will see at these conferences is is a lot of climate shaming um a lot of the us pointing the finger to russia and china rather than um taking its own initiative in terms of decarbonisation but i think it's going to be very difficult to get around things i think any discussions around carbon pricing will see carbon markets really start to increase and sort of the scope of them really start to increase um, I think, yeah, similarly, renewable energy targets and 
making sure that people are, are on board with net zero by 2050 across the world. I think that's going to be something that we really see come in shape. When you see a resurgent China, which is um, becomes the world's largest economy, which at a time accelerates its um, net zero from 2060 and says, oh, well, we've already achieved it. What is it? Only 2045. And you see the change in its dominance in markets like solar, like electric vehicles, uh, you're going to see, and, and you see it leave behind the um, Belt and Road Initiative for fossil fuels. You're going to see uh, nobody remembering why China is thought of as the part of the evil access, i.e. its form of government and the totalitarian uh, form of government that, that brings us situations like the Uyghurs. Um, you're going to see global leadership from China. You're going to see um, market financial leadership from China. You're going to see America falling, falling behind um, in, every, in every part of the economy. It just, it's just continuous. Um, they are absolutely ruthless. But what, what, what happens when they're no longer toxic? What happens when they go, OK, we'll fix the humanitarian crisis here and there. We'll also... Um, We'll we'll let some of your companies operate in China. We but you but we want to sell our cars in your country, and they're much cheaper than the American cars. Suddenly, they'll own most of the major industries. 